Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I am chatting with Payson McKelvin, who for most probably needs little to no introduction. Among many of his accomplishments, he's a Red Bull athlete, a two-time marathon national champion, a two-time Mid-South champion, and the host of the popular Adventure Stash podcast. On today's episode, we cover a range of topics, including, but not limited to, what it's like to be a professional bike racer in today's day and age, his attempt at the Colorado Trail FKT, a couple of crossings that he's done both in Iceland and in Tasmania. So that is just a quick recap of some of the topics that we're going to be discussing on today's episode. I was thrilled to have Payson on the podcast. I've been following his career both on and off the bike for many years. We actually started our podcast almost at the same time. Uh, I started mine in late 2018 and he started his right at the beginning of 2019. And uh, so I've paid close attention to uh, him as a podcaster, him as an athlete, and I've admired from afar uh, what he's been able to accomplish in both of those arenas. And today's conversation did not disappoint. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And before we get to that conversation, I would like to thank the people that made today's episode possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. This week, we'd like to thank Peter Meergartz for signing up to be a sustaining member of the Bikes for Death podcast, as well as Jack Parsine, who has increased his pledge. So we thank both of y'all for your support. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death. And as a reminder, you can do a one-time donation or you can sign up to be a monthly member and it really helps us keep the wheels turning and the lights on over here at Bikes for Death headquarters. All right, and a little community spotlight for you this week. Um, I wanna tell you about the Ozark Randonneur or Randonnay or Ozark Rando. You can call it whatever you want to. Andrew Onermaw doesn't care and he's the race director. Uh, this is a new event from Ozark Gravel Cyclists. It's taking place on September 16th of this year. They have two route options, a 120 and a 200 mile route, and they're really promoting the community, having a good time, and really putting community over competition and trying to make an event that is accessible and fun, and I'm all into that. So uh, my girlfriend and I are actually gonna be doing the 120 mile route option. And we're really looking forward to being out there in the hills of Arkansas. It's been, a, it's been a few years since I've got to do any like serious bike riding in Arkansas. And I'm really looking forward to uh, being back and uh, being back on the bike, seeing the beautiful hills, the rivers and the trees in Arkansas and hanging out with some cool bike people. Um, in that vein, uh, I'm going to be out there recording a podcast, recording our experience as we go along, and I'll be happy to chat, say hi, ride bikes, drink a beer, whatever. Uh, if you're going or if you'd like to go, head over to OzarkGravelCyclist.com for all the information about this route, link to registration, and all that good stuff. And if you're there, don't be shy to say hi. And I hope you are there. And let's ride our damn bikes together, okay? Cool. 
All right, well, just a quick reminder, because I'm eager to get into today's episode, but if you have been craving a pair of new sunglasses, may I recommend the Ombra's Armless Sunglasses. I really think that they are one of the best pieces of equipment for adventurers and cyclists are included. I've talked many times about the convenience of having them hang around your neck when you're not using them. I have broken so many pairs of sunglasses. I have lost sunglasses and rivers and lakes and the ombras have really been a great solution for that and not to mention they look pretty dope too so if you'd like to get in on the ombras craze i encourage you to head over to ombras.com that's o-m-b-r-a-z.com find a pair that you like and when you put them in your cart use the code bikes or death 20 you'll get $20 off of any pair of ombras and ombras will send me $20 as a thank you which is a pretty sweet deal all right everybody that is it the bills are paid and the lights are on for one more week and now it's time to get to my chat with Payson McKelvin but first let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the bikes or death theme song you load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Payson McKelvin, welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast, man. It's uh, an absolute honor to have you. I've been following your career closely uh, <laughs> ever since 2016, honestly. So uh, it's it's a huge honor for you to to be here, and I'm stoked to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm definitely a fan of the podcast. I've listened to a lot of your episodes on mini bike rides, so it's cool to be here. Oh, right on. I. Uh, I have a rule. I'll be. I'd be curious if if this resonates with you at all. But I do. I make. I've made a rule like since the very beginning to not listen to other cycling podcasts simply because I never. I, I just want to be in my own lane. Like I don't want to be. Um, oh, that was a good question. Or I, I want to. You know, go down that rabbit hole in that way next time I interview that person. Or and also, there's probably a little bit of ego there where I don't want to listen and be like, "You just interviewed Lael." Be like, "Oh man, he like slayed that interview. It's like way better than mine." <laughs> uh, but yours, I, I like yours is one. We we started our podcast very close in proximity uh, to hmm. each other. I don't know if you know that. That's um, cool. But yours is the only one that I've I've listened to uh, fairly regularly, and it's very well done. And well, I don't uh, know whether uh, whether to take that as a compliment or you just think it's not threatening. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, it's cool. definitely a compliment because I'm overriding my ego to uh, <laughs> to uh, ingest the information. So uh, it's That's it's impressive. definitely meant That's... to be a compliment. That's a that's a lot of discipline to hold off on other cycling or bike related podcasts because there's there's a lot of good ones out there right now. But I I tip my hat to you for that. That's uh it's very professional. <laughs> I guess uh, it's also like you know the podcast is kind of like my job, and I've also found that just being a podcaster, it has 
almost ruined podcast for me, like listening to podcast. Um, I find that I'm, oh, how did they do their intro and how they set that question up and, oh, they interrupted them there and, oh, I caught an edit there. And, you know, I'm just like, I, I'm having a hard time like getting out of podcaster mode and just like sitting and listening to it from an entertainment standpoint, you know? Yeah. Um, it's interesting so. you say that because I have that experience with movies now where I mm. can't, I, I have trouble keeping myself in the movie. Sometimes if I see some absolutely crazy shot logistically, it, I just, it takes me out of the movie and I start thinking about the cameraman, like how in the world did they do that? For, for example, speaking of bike packing, um, I went to a movie with Lyle and Rue last week before Lyle set off for the CT, just a uh, spur of the moment thing, terrible movie called The Baker. And there's this fight scene where the camera is just like all over the place and kind of moving in tight on the faces of the actors as the fight scene's happening, then going back and it's in this tight, dark, like back of a truck. And it's this epic fight scene. You're supposed to feel totally on edge. And the whole time I'm just like, how are they getting this shot? So <laughs> I totally, uh, I totally yeah. get what you're saying. Yeah. I love, yeah. I love the format of podcasting and long form conversations. And I don't know, it's still a journey that I'm on and I kind of go through ebbs and flows with where I listen to podcasts and whatnot. But anyway, let's get to you. Uh, your on and off the bike accomplishments are, are fairly vast at this point. Um, I wonder if, by way of introduction, if you can kind of give us the elevator pitch on uh, who you are, what you do, and uh, give give the audience just uh, an insight into who Payson McKelvin is. Oh, boy. Um, let's see. I haven't had to do this for a while. Usually someone just reads off results and half. I have them from... all here, but, you know. No, I, no, I'm it's all make, good. I like put this. you to work. <laughs> I like this. I like this. This is great. Um, how would I describe myself? Well, I'm, I'm a professional mountain biker and gravel racer these days. Um, depends on who you ask. To some, I'm just a gravel racer. To some people on Instagram, it's amazing how, how rapidly that discipline has taken over. I feel like some people don't even remember that mountain bike racing exists anymore here in the States, <laughs> but it does. It's alive and well. The Leadville 100 was last weekend and it's awesome to be part of. Um, but yeah, like you, I also host a podcast. Um, that's been a really rewarding, really rewarding part of my life. It was something that I at first did a little bit grudgingly. It was uh, my sponsor Red Bull's idea. Um, and I at the time felt like, you know, there were plenty of podcasts out there and I didn't really necessarily have anything to add. But as I'm sure you found, um, it's really enjoyable as the host. And so I've totally been immersed with that over the last five or so years since 2019. Um, I live in Durango, Colorado with my amazing fiance, Nicole, um, and our dog, fiance. Ray. Yeah. I missed the memo. Congratulations. Thanks. Well, I don't, uh, I don't blame you because we've been engaged for a year and a half, almost two years. Which okay. says something about our uh, the speed of our life that we haven't uh, carved out the time to actually have a wedding yet. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up uh, grew up in the hill country of Texas, about fifteen minutes outside of Austin, in a tiny little well, it's not, not so tiny anymore, but Dripping Springs was a tiny little town. Yeah. Um, yeah. What else? I kind of uh, 
went through the typical USA cycling ranks, did the US national team thing when I was a junior, went to Europe, uh, raced some World Cups as a junior in U23, um, ended up winning uh, professional marathon nationals in 2017, which was kind of my first uh, experience with being branded by other people. And all of a sudden I was the long distance guy and started getting encouraged to do more long distance racing. And I think that was kind of the first domino that started leading me to where I am today. Um, yeah. And over time I just found myself doing more of the longer distance stuff and enjoying more of the longer distance stuff. So when the gravel scene really blew up, I was pretty well, uh, positioned, um, to, to transition into that and found that I really, really loved it. Um, and so these days I do a mix of long distance mountain bike stuff, gravel stuff. And then, uh, I don't know how I describe them, but they're, uh, I guess soul rides, um, Ah. the simplest way, you know, big, big missions, trips. Um, I hesitate to call them bike packing so much, you know, sometimes they're more bike tours. Sometimes they're really big, like multi-day, but single effort pushes, but stuff that's more for me that I end up doing media around most of the time, uh, but aren't, you know, cut and dried, uh, more traditional races. So those are sort of the, that's like the mixed bag of what I do. (laughs) That was a pretty good, that was pretty good. I think the only thing you left out, uh, and it pertains to our conversation today, but, um, Stash House Productions, I believe, uh, uh, the Adventure Stash podcast is underneath that, but you also are producing a, a decent amount of films um, through Stash House. Um, mm-hmm. What are what are your goals with your media outreach? Because that is outside of hey, I'm a, a professional bike rider. What what is the value you're getting out of producing these films? Um, I have to assume it's detracting from your ability to you know, train and, you know, you're going to have to carve out time to make that happen. What is your why for, for investing so much time and energy into producing like this media content that goes alongside your racing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, really the simplest answer is I just have to do it. Like it's a, it's a thing that I can't turn off the, the creative, the creative part of my mind. Um, I don't know, you know, that got some of that's got to be a personality thing, but I also, um, went to the Austin Waldorf school K through 12, which is a very, you know, hands-on creative sort of artistic school, um, and just cultivated this, uh, interest and passion for creativity from, you know, when I was four or five years old. And that was a a common thread through my education all the way up until I left for, for college, uh, in Durango when I was 18. So I think that probably has to, has to play a role with it, but, um, you know, it, it does take away from my racing and I get told that, um, by my peers sometimes, you know, Oh man, I can't believe you're coming straight to this race from, you know, doing that shoot or, you know, um, there was a funny moment last year. So these days we have this thing called the lifetime grand prix, which is this big seven round series, um, <clears throat> race series. And, uh, it was the morning of the fifth round, I think last year, Schwamigan, which is a, a really classic 40 mile mountain bike race in Wisconsin. And, uh, I was almost late to warm up cause I was busy, just like totally immersed in, in ride with, <clears throat> excuse me, ride with GPS routes, uh, 
from this Tasmania project that I think we'll mm-hmm, talk about mm-hmm. at some point. I was yeah. I was just elbows deep and like making fine adjustments to this route, um, which was you know a completely different realm, three hundred and sixty mile ride versus a forty mile race. Um, but that's just kind of how my my mind works. You know, I I can get really obsessive about ideas and especially creative ideas. Um, so I've I've tried to take a step back now and then from content creation, uh, making stuff. I also, I also actually really enjoy writing. So, um, it's not something I do as much anymore, but now and then when a sponsor requests something, I find myself just getting like totally immersed in it way more than I should and spending way more time on it (laughs) than I should. So, um, that's the short answer. And it does have payoff professionally for sure. Um, you know, it's no secret that brands really, uh, rely on media. Um, but it's, uh, it's just something that I can't stop doing <laughs> for yeah. now. This is one of the things that I really like and admire about you is is how, you know, we might see people kind of pigeon themselves and it doesn't matter the sport, right? Or, or, I mean, we're just humans, we're tribal and it's like, okay, I'm a road cyclist. No, I'm a gravel cyclist. I'm a mountain biker. And, and one thing I like to try to promulgate is, is tearing down those walls, so to speak, and we're all cyclists and we can appreciate and really enjoy different aspects of, of this sport. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it and I really enjoy celebrating that. And you are a great example of somebody who is, you know, cross-discipline um, and also has a strong media presence and a, and a storytelling ability to, to share those stories. And I, I think it does um, a great value and service to this community, uh, by and large, is, is that something you're aware of? Is that intentional or is that just who you are as a person? And, and we just get to sit back and watch and enjoy the show. Yeah. To be honest, I'm really not aware of what it's adding, um, to the, <clears throat> the community as a whole or other riders, you know, it's really hard to, it, it's hard for me to, um, I'm just way too close to it to have any sort of perspective about that. So the only time that maybe I'm reminded of that or feel, feel like that might be the case is when someone tells me, you know, if someone writes a really heartfelt email or comes up at an event and tells me specifically about a certain part in a film we made that really resonated with them. Um, and that goes a long way because as you know, the, the podcast can be quite a grind, you know, uh, we churn one out every single week. And so it's, um, it's just a lot of volume of work. Um, and there are definitely weeks where it's like, man, should we just skip this week? Like, what would we have, what would happen if we just skipped? The week? <laughs> um, but you know, then we have people tell us that something was meaningful to them and it really reinforces that we should stick with it and, and stay committed. So, um, I mean, it's nice to hear and I don't know, maybe one day I'll be able to kind of see, um, see that it is contributing to something, but some of it is probably just that like, uh, I don't know, low grade anxiety that drives you, you know, to keep your foot on the gas. Mm. Um, that I think, uh, you know, people who, who, uh, work hard and maybe work too hard sometimes have that, you know, they, they have this doubt, like, is it enough? Am I doing enough? Could I do more? Could I do this better? And that's definitely something that I have um, in spades. So yeah, I'm not I'm not very good at sitting back and like appreciating um, 
something that that we've done <laughs> i'm always just looking to the next thing so maybe that's one reason that i don't have a ton of perspective on it yeah well i'm not gonna have you slow down i'm enjoying the ride so <laughs> keep doing what you're doing let's let's go back in time a little bit you and i uh crossed paths actually back in 2017 we've never we've never met um but i'm wondering if you remember uh Miles of Discomfort at Rocky Hill Ranch, part of the Timbra series, the the Marathon Timbra series in 2017. Um, so I believe you turned professional in 2016. So this was very much at the very, very beginning of your professional uh, cycling career. And you were in the open category and I was in the uh, just age category. But um, I remember rolling up to that event and all anybody was talking about was that you were there. Like I, the first thing I do, I get on my car and like, oh, Payson's here, Orange Seal's here. And uh, I'm like, I didn't know who you were, to be honest, but everybody was just like so stoked that you were there. And we were all like gathered around to watch. I don't know if you'll remember the start. It was like a half mile climb up like a, a grassy hill, I think, to make room for all the racers to kind of, okay. you know, get in line and whatnot. But um yeah, that was that was uh, kind of at the beginning of your career, and we raced the same race, which was kind of like cool for me. And you know, we're here six years later, and it, I think we can say you made it. I mean, you're a Red Bull <laughs> athlete, uh, you're a two-time national champion, uh, many other accolades. Uh, do you ever like? I'm curious, like, what it's like to be you to some extent, to be, to look back on 2017 Payson, who's, you know, doing Timbra on his journey, beginning his journey and looking six years later at where you are now. We just talked about how you never put your foot off the gas. Have you taken any time to appreciate what you've done in the past six years? And do you have any like reflections on, on that? Hmm. Yeah. Good question. Um, I should work on that for sure because you're, <laughs> you're, you're right. You know, it is, uh, it is a pretty special journey. Um, and it, it's a special journey just to, you know, go through life, getting to do amazing bike rides and races and, and have different experiences. But the, I, what you're kind of getting at is just like this, the process of it all. Um, you know, I do sometimes think back on growing up in central Texas and I was very lucky to have such a, a healthy race scene there, uh, when I was a junior racer, um, comfort is actually the, the first place I raced, uh, I think okay. when I was 14, maybe, um, <clears throat> so when I think back on that, you know, it has been, uh, it has been quite the journey, but you know, th this business can be hard because it's, um, it's so competitive and if you're not getting results, um, you're replaceable for sure, you know? Um, and that's changed some, we've talked a little bit about kind of like the diversification of the modern athlete and how you can wear these different hats and have, um, uh, you know, a big online following or, creating content, all these sorts of things. I think of it as sort of like diversifying your portfolio, like mm -hmm. a stock portfolio. So if, if one part isn't going well, you know, you're, you're still, uh, okay with the other parts. And that's certainly the case in, in the current scene, but at the same time, um, 
racing is hard, you know, it's ruthless. People are going to, there's always going to be a winner. There's always going to be a podium. There's always going to be a top 10. Um, and whether it's as, whether the business side is as cutthroat as I feel like it is or not, all athletes, every single athlete, all of my peers, you know, you're always thinking about the next race. You're always battling for that next result. Um, and I've kind of gone through that this year where, you know, I, I won my first race of the year at the Mid-South, uh, one of the bigger gravel races, amazing way to kick off the season. Um, and then I went through this phase where I had some health issues, had a concussion, um, dealt with some illness and missed some races. And I'm just now getting back into it. And I've had a couple of, you know, top 10 finishes, but I, I have this like, uh, um, drive, like it, it has to be better. You don't have to get back on that podium. And some of that is the professional side, but a lot of it is just the athletic side, the competitive side, you know, the thing that drives all of us to be our best. So to answer your question, no, I'm not thinking back to 2016 <laughs> miles to, of discomfort as much as I should, you know, really, I should reflect on that more because it is, um, I think having that big picture perspective is, is so, so important because, you know, otherwise, what are we, what are we doing it for? These careers aren't too terribly long. So, um, sometimes I do reflect on it, especially if I run into someone, uh, for example, I ran into a buddy who, um, is from, from central Texas. Noel Reuter is his name, uh, has raced the timber scene for quite a while. And he was one of the kind of the local elite level guys that took me under his wing when I was really young, a junior racer, uh, racing for bicycle sports shop. Um, and just seeing him in this, you know, huge expo area at the Leadville 100 with, you know, all these people that are being very friendly and, you know, lots of photos being taken. A lot of people want, uh, to talk to you all of a sudden to see Noel there, this sort of like blast from the past, like reminder of, of where I came from, um, was really cool. And for a moment gave me some perspective. So, um, it is important and it is something that I should, that I should work on for sure. Yeah. Well, as a fellow Texan and somebody who was uh, once lined up on the same race as you were, it's it, it's been awesome to watch your journey. And, and anytime you're in the field, I'm always I'm glued. I'm interested. I want to I want to see how you're doing. I'm always rooting for you. You know, I want to throw a disclaimer out for this because we might get some people listening to this episode that are coming more from your side of the camp, which is more on the racing scene. I have to admit, like, I, you know, my audience and, and my niche is really in the bike packing, bike touring, bike camping, whatever you want to say. And, um, and, and this, the whole race side of cycling, not that I, I it, it's just, there's only so much time in the day and I've decided to focus on, on this niche. And, and so I'm not the most well versed in, you know, the side of being a professional athlete um, in the racing side of cycling. And I, I'm, I don't know to what degree my audience is, to be honest. Um, but I'm very curious what it's like to be a professional cyclist. I wonder if you can peek back the curtain just a little bit, maybe share some of the, like the good and the bad, you know, the hard parts that people don't see because all we're seeing is maybe the 1% where you're like mm -hmm. lining up at unbound or something and like everybody's glued in and, and everybody's stoked. But like, can you peek, like, just give us a little peek into what is it really <laughs> like to be a professional cyclist in 2023? 
Yeah. Um, well, it's an amazing lifestyle. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes I have trouble with perspective, but pretty regularly I'm able to look up from whatever I'm doing and just think, man, how lucky am I? Um, I think one of the, and, and it should also be noted, like there's lots of different styles of professional cycling. Um, so the one that I'm a part of is, is pretty new right now. And it's kind of this majority North American scene right now, although it's really going global. Um, and it's predominantly mass participation events. So think of the Leadville 100. That was kind of like the OG event to really um, make this idea of this style race setup. Like, okay, this this is really a format that can do well. And those of us that ended up being able to do it professionally, like we almost like uh, sometimes I feel like we kind of took advantage of the system or like snuck in the back door because these events were not started for professional racing. You know, they're, they're mass participation events. So for the Leadville 100, for example, um, I think there were 2,000 people on the start line and the first corral of, of athletes that's maybe 200, two or 300, 200 or 300 athletes are professional or professional level athletes with sponsors trying to go really fast, super focused, the thousands of people behind us are just out there for the experience and to finish. And I think the the really interesting thing is here in the States, you know, bike racing is really a participation sport. Um, in Europe uh, and other places around the world, especially traditionally Europe, it's a spectator sport. So obviously the Tour de France or, you know, even a lot of the mountain bike races, there's, you know, I've done some uh, Swiss national series races, for example, and there'll be 10, 15,000 people lining a five kilometer lap. And it's just like, man, I cannot believe that there are so many people that want to just watch a bunch of mountain bikers ride around in a circle in in rural (laughs) Switzerland. We definitely don't have that in the States. Um, but the difference is, you know, there's this unbelievable community, uh, where you have kind of the elite level athletes and then you have all of the, the, the riders that are just doing it more for the experience. And, um, on a personal level, you know, we're all mingling, we're all at the expo area, we're all doing the same, the same thing. Um, and we're able to be, you know, ambassadors at a level, um, that I think is really unique, you know, folks that are interested in what we're doing have a lot, a lot more access than other professional sports. You know, if you think of going back to the tour, for example, of, uh, Tade Pogachar, you know, he's always being chaperoned around by his PR person and a couple of, you know, bodyguard type people to make sure he doesn't get hassled too much. He's not wasting, you know, 30 seconds of energy. Um, and so my style is, uh, very athletically driven, but it also has this, this greater community element, um, that really makes it possible, I guess. So there's different styles, you know, again, with the tour, like it's, it's much more of like a league. It's more of like a, an NBA or an NFL, Hmm. Um, and we're kind of in this funny in-between spot, uh, and it's really, it's really a sweet spot right now. Um, I'm really excited to see it going global. Um, I'm going to be doing more races in Europe next year, just because there are European, you know, off-road endurance races that are just really exploding. Like the Traca, for example, um, Hmm. in Girona, Spain. Um, so it's an interesting time. I don't think anyone necessarily saw it coming. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting time and that's a good perspective. 
Speaking of being a, a professional cyclist, I, I I had this kind of question or thought recently, and it is that you know let's let's use Leadville for example, since you just finished Leadville. You know, at the start line of Leadville to the finish line of Leadville, I can't imagine it's hard to find the motivation to go hard, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's when it's easy to find the motivation and really put in the work and 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 do what you came there to do. I'm curious, like, what is it that keeps you motivated and keeps you driven and pushing the other, you know, 99% of the time when you're just at home, when things are hard or it's cold outside or you're sore or whatever, like, how do you maintain such a high level of motivation and discipline to be able to compete at a high level at Leadville or Unbound or SPT Gravel or whatever it may be? Yeah. Um, yeah, the answer might surprise you, but for me at this point, the training's the easy part. Okay. I just, yeah. I, I, I love that process. Um, I love, I love seeing the incremental progress. I love training hard. Um, you know, it, it feels like one huge puzzle. Um, and I think there's probably some, a little bit of like, uh, OCD personality that comes into play, you know, just like the the satisfaction of having a certain number of intervals to do and just nailing them all at the the number you were supposed to feels really good. Um, yeah, sometimes it is kind of surprising to me that there is still payoff, but you know, if I go out for a five or six hour training ride and it's just an endurance training ride and I'm supposed to be riding at, you know, a certain heart rate, the average speed doesn't necessarily matter. But if I get home and I average like half a mile per hour more, than I expected to, or my coach expected me to, there's still sort of that like young junior racer inside me that gets a lot of satisfaction out of that. Like, yeah, you know, we went, we went fast today. We went a little faster than I expected today. Um, I love that. Um, and it's just a great routine. I mean, yeah, it can be really, really hard work without a doubt. I think a lot of times it does get glorified, um, because it, it does, you know, garner, attention some of the time, but it's, uh, it's really just kind of manual labor and it's a lot of it, you know, like for the month leading up to Leadville, um, I didn't do a single week of training that was less than I think 22 hours, which by bike packing terms, you know, is nothing. But when you consider that it's a very tightly managed 20 to 30 hours every week with very specific efforts and, you know, for multiple hours at a time, you'll just be really gritting your teeth just right on the edge of what, what you can manage it's hard work. And then you add on top of that, um, all of the coordination of bike setup, um, you know, with the diversity of events and styles of course we have these days, just the sheer number of hours we have to spend thinking about bike setup, um, adjusting little things on, on the bikes. Uh, you know, I have six different bikes, so there's a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of different setups we can use, uh, tire widths. Um, you know, you've got aerodynamic considerations, what helmet you use, um, literally, I mean, it's crazy how granular it gets, but right down to like what socks you're going to use, whether you use aero socks or, or not, or not aero socks. And I didn't even the, know they had aero socks. So that's I know, where I'm at. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's crazy until you see the numbers, you know, the actual time savings and you look at the results wow. sheet. It's like, well, there was a guy 45 seconds ahead of me at Leadville. I didn't wear aero socks in the wind tunnel aerosocks is more than 45 seconds. (laughs) Um, so it's, 
it's crazy how into the weeds you can get. But long story short, um, it's uh, you really can put as much time and effort into the details as you want to. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where I put a lot of time and effort into the details, but I'm also simultaneously right now trying to figure out whether it makes sense to uh, try to do a, a double crossing next year, like two islands that happen to be near each other. Yeah. Do I want to try to do two in two days, just pouring over maps, um, starting to think about funding, you know? So that's where uh, the days can get really, really long. Um, but you're giving yourself extra work essentially. Oh yeah. But at the same time, man, like I can't believe that it's work. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I'm so dang lucky. I mean, how crazy. At least is you that? have that perspective. Yeah. That's a, yeah. <clears throat> um, the racing, the racing can be hard though. That's, that's really what I found the last few years is like the, the real killer, uh, mentally and emotionally. Um, because even if, for most of us, even if say you have an incredible season and you win like two, maybe three big races, that means there's 10 to 12 that you battled and you got beat at. And you're sp- so you're spending most of your time losing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and when you've won a race, um, you're really hard on yourself. When you won a race in the past, when you know what it's like to win, when you know what it's like to be on the podium, anything short of that. Uh, to a degree is disappointing. And so that's a tough place to be mentally and emotionally. And then it's just so competitive these days, like Leadville a few days ago. I mean, the number of of guys we had from overseas was just crazy. I was sandwiched between a guy from the Czech Republic and a guy from Germany. Um, and it's just cutthroat. You know, you're just going hammer and tong for six hours. No one's giving an inch, you're just locked in, you know, doing battle. And then somehow you have to come back to the real world afterward and, you know, be a good partner and not forget to feed the dog and all the normal <laughs> things of life. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a dynamic thing and every day is different. It's really hard, but I feel very lucky. Yeah. I, one thing that I, I picked up on and I want to follow up on here is so when you're let's your coach, we're training for Leadville, your coach gives you a plan. I guess one thing I never considered is that you're also dialing in your gear specifically for that race. What bike, what tire, what socks, like that's all part of that training program is figuring out, you know, being in the right fitness, but also being, having the right equipment, the right setup, everything completely dialed for that specific event. So that's something that'll change every, every race essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've raced the same bike setup twice so far this year. Wow. It's different every time. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I never would have thought about that. Let's talk about Leadville. You touched on it, just happened. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, it is kind of the OG and endurance race. And um, the film, there's a couple of films. Well, it's one, the, the Race Across the Sky. I assume you've seen it. Um, yeah. I have to think that's what probably popularized Leadville for the masses uh Uh 2009 2010 i think you can find on amazon for the listeners if you want to check it out and it's actually really great because uh people in the bikepacking world will maybe be familiar with um hal russell uh who's kind of a legend in the bikepacking scene and he was in one of those and then obviously lance armstrong uh was in one of them but it is it's an iconic race and uh it, this year I thought was pretty interesting. You came in 10th place, 
which was 35 minutes after first, but only 11 minutes after second. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. So two through 10, <laughs> there was 11 minute gap. And then the leader had a 24 minute gap on everybody yeah. else. So yeah, yeah, yeah. this is something we're all thinking about a lot right now. Okay. <laughs> so basically we have, so everything I described in terms of, you know, trying to find balance with like the media stuff and the professional racing stuff. Um, the fact that you spend most of your time losing, all that sort of thing. That's true for the majority of us, but there's this one guy that it's not true for. <laughs> and that's Keegan Swinson. So Keegan, um, Keegan's someone that I've raced with for a really, really long time. Uh, we had pretty similar uh, career paths, I guess, kind of both doing the junior and U23 World Cup thing. Um, he went for the Olympic team, uh, I guess, two Olympic cycles ago, maybe. Um, just barely missed out. And I think it was really, um, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it was a big shift for him. And he shifted his focus to more of this endurance stuff and turned out he was way more suited to it. And, um, his personality is one such that he puts 100% everything in his life towards going fast on a bike. Um, he, he does very little outside of training, um, equipment optimization, you know, training camps. He has a very almost like a world tour road mentality. Um, and he's also supremely talented, especially at altitude. So he, uh, he's, he just dominates the series. I think last year he won four out of six rounds. Um, I had two sprint finishes with him, I think, but never beat him last year. Uh, and then a lot of the races, he was he was quite a bit ahead. Last year, he missed out on setting the Leadville record by, I think, 90 seconds. And ever since then, he's just been like a bulldog, just fully has his teeth around this thing. And so for the 364 days since last year, he's just been fully focused on smashing this record. Um, and what's interesting about the record is it, when it was set in 2015, um, it was the, the current marathon world champion, this guy, Alban Lakata from Austria, who came over and brought two of his teammates. And they basically did it like team time trial style, just fully optimized to try to be the first to go under six hours. And they did it. Um, but Keegan is we've kind of had suspicion for a while that he's like the potentially the best altitude off road racer in the world and that he could really smash this record. So he did everything. He did this crazy bike setup. He did crazy specific training for this race, had a pacing plan, um, brought a teammate to lead it out and, and get ahead of the record early on. And he just smashed the record. Um, so that's why he's he's way ahead. You know, he he circled this thing as like his A priority yeah. of the year. Um, and he's just better than the rest of us right now, like hands down. And there's a lot of conversation about if there's anyone in the world that could have gone faster than he did the other day. And some people want to see uh Sepp Kuss come back to, to the mountain bike for one Leadville and do like a UFC style heavyweight head to head. Um, <laughs> but we'll I see. Like I mean, he, he's incredible. So that, that's that story. The rest of us mortals were all packed together really tightly there. So <laughs> second through 11 mortals, there was thousands <laughs> of other mortals way behind y'all. So yeah, <laughs> it's all about perspective. So, you know, how are you feeling about your 10th place? Uh, you, you're coming off of a concussion, some injuries, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. But I mean, I, I'm wondering, like, how you're feeling about a 10th place and, and where you go from here, you know? 
Yeah, I guess I'm kind of like I was saying earlier, I'm sort of at a stage in my career where if I'm not on the podium, you know, I was, I was hoping for more type thing. Yeah. Um, especially for Leadville where I've been on the podium twice. Um, but like I said, you know, these races just continue to get faster and more competitive. So I actually went faster than I've ever gone at Leadville. My time was six minutes faster than my previous best. Right. Um, but it was one of my lowest finishes, you know, on the results sheet. Um, and that's just the nature of the sport right now. Um, it's also kind of different because we have this season long points chase. So, um, I'm basically trying to score as many points at each one of these rounds to accumulate a certain number and end up with a high overall finish. Like you said, the, the beginning of my year was pretty rough, had a really, really hard crash, um, ended up in an ambulance and, you know, carted off off the course back in May. Um, so I'm still kind of, uh, finding my top level. Um, but it's encouraging. I've had a couple of consistent races now. Um, first being at uh, crusher and the tusher back in June and then this one in, in July. So it's crusher or, and the, sorry, tusher, the one where you get a tattoo on your ass. No, that's single speed worlds. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that too, though. Uh, yeah. That's a good one. Um, but yeah, it, it's coming around. It's a process and it's just so competitive that you can't, uh, you just have to be patient, really. Yeah. And I've learned that over the years. Okay. So are you being patient? How like how is it really <laughs> sitting with you? No, I'm not. I'm not. And <laughs> you could I mean, Nicole could jump in here and be, you know, I'm sure just say, Oh, he's being he's an absolute terror. Um <laughs> it's hard. And runs again, and hides when you come <laughs> in the house. <laughs> no. But it I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's the blessing and the curse of, of being a motivated athlete, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost never enough. Um, you're always looking to, to be a better athlete and it's what drives you and it's what keeps the competition going up a little bit every year. It keeps us all, uh, you know, kind of collectively we're raising the level of what we can each individually do, which is the whole point of competition. Yeah. Um, but the flip side is, you know, there's some sleepless nights as you, ask yourself, you know, why it didn't quite click on race day and, and that sort of thing. Um, and that's the stuff that people don't see as much that, uh, is really hard for sure. Is that, that mental side. Yeah. I just saw, um, this past week, uh, an Instagram reel that the algorithm fed to me from, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, and he was giving an analogy of like, you take a guy who is in a foot race and he, you know, he's dominant, you know, he's winning every single time against a group. And then you put him in, you know, a faster category and he comes in last place, but his last place time is almost always going to be faster than his time when he was always at the beginning of the pack. Mm. And that analogy that he gave made me think about your Leadville, about how, you know, you might have come in tenth, but your tenth was your fastest finish yet, I believe, at, at Leadville. And mm-hmm. and to speak to what you just said about how it is that competition that is going to elevate the sport and you know, let the best person win, you know. I mean, that's that's the spirit of competition and really what makes it beautiful is that it allows it really does bring out the best in people, you know, whenever, whenever you're put up against somebody who's, who's fast, you have to throw down or you don't, but I mean, that's when you find out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, kind of a a bit of a tangent, but one of the things that I really appreciate 
about competition and racing is that it just really sharpens your blade for whatever other riding you do. So when I'm back home in Durango and I'm doing a big soul ride or just endurance training ride on the Colorado trail, you know, you just feel so like such a capable athlete and you're so fit. Um, and you can just, you know, bang out huge rides really without batting an eye and just see so much. Um, Mm. and that kind of goes back to some of my side interests in these more ultra distance things, you know, whether it's a crossing or, you know, a big bike tour or whatever it is. Um, this racing, you know, just, uh, demands such a level of fitness that I'm able to go on some really cool, big adventures, um, maybe without as much experience as other people who, who maybe you spend more time doing that thing. It can get me into trouble too. Like when I took a swing at the CT in 2020, but, um, I really appreciate that. You know, it really does sharpen your edge and, and, uh, makes it so that I can get up to some pretty cool weekday adventures as well. Yeah. Well, perfect segue. Uh, next on my list is the Colorado <laughs> trail FKT and, uh, yeah. it's timely because the Colorado trail race is happening right now. Our friend Lael Wilcox is out there absolutely putting on a fucking clinic, which is great to see. Uh, No media, no problem, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. She's potentially even going faster. Strange. Weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I need to say about that. Uh, I know we both had our our foray into that conversation. And anyway, uh, we'll leave it where where it lies for now. But um, yeah, I mean, from from a spectator, uh, a fan of the sport, when I saw you were going to take on the Colorado Trail as an FKT, uh, super stoked, super interested. Again, I love cross disciplines. I, I love it when I see a Lachlan Morton come over and, you know, try something on the endurance side or a Payson come over. I mean, I think, great, bring it on. You know, it's all about competition and let's see who can who can do it. You know, I mean, the trail is there. Like, there's no cheat code, like, you just yeah. got to show up and do it. I think my first question here is like, it was 2020, it was during the pandemic. So I think like the why, why did you do it? I think it being a pandemic year and races being canceled probably speaks to that to maybe a large degree. Um, but outside of that, like, you know, this was your first bike packing trip ever, right? Like, yeah, yeah you took yeah. on... Totally. arguably the hardest mile for mile <laughs> bike uh, bike route in the world as your first bikepacking trip. Why? Like what mm. what about that? Why why even try? I mean, that's so far outside of what you do typically. Um, yeah, I'm super curious. Yeah. Well, a few things. One, I really need to give credit to my partner, Nicole, because this is much more uh, her realm, this bikepacking sort of space. And when we started dating right at the beginning of 2020, um, shortly thereafter, my races got shut down. And so we had this amazing opportunity uh, to go on, you know, bike adventures together, more backcountry uh, bikepacking style bikepack adventures. So we did a few little overnights, um, just short little weekend things. And I loved it. You know, I loved the, the gear selection component, you know, being self-reliant, figuring out how to to actually take care of yourself. She, 
she laughed uh, when we went on our first high country ride together. So for those that don't know, I, I live in Durango and we have a, an incredible section of the Colorado Trail kind of right behind our house from Silverton to Durango. Uh, a lot of people's favorite sort of potentially one of the most brutal sections too. And um, sh- we were getting ready for, I think, our first big Colorado Trail ride together and I grabbed my little like race rain shell and, you know, she had this big pack with like a medical kit and, you know, stuff that you should take on a high Alpine adventure. And she was like, what are you doing? You know, where's all your stuff? And I forget how I said it, but it's sort of what I went back to earlier. Like if I, in the past, if I get into a situation weather wise or, or whatever else, like I literally would just fitness my way out of it, just like put my head down and I know that I can get out of anywhere pretty quickly. Um, and I soon learned that you just can't do that. You know, if you're doing an overnight, doing a a longer mission, like you have to take care of, or you have to take stuff to actually take care of yourself. And so I gradually was introduced to this new style of riding, this more adventure oriented style of riding rather than this Mm. performance driven style of riding. And I just really fell in love with it. And then, um, a few months later, Rebecca Rush did a, a big fundraiser. Um, I forget what she called it, but basically as part of it, I, I did a, a single track Everesting. So climbed 29,000 feet. I remember on, why she did that. Yeah. Um, so I did that on high Alpine single track. And to that point, it was the the longest ride I'd done. I think it was like 16 or 17 hours. Um, and I felt really good. And I was shocked at how good I felt afterward. And I was like, man, that was cool. And the places that it took my mind uh, was one of the coolest things I've experienced. I think I want to dabble more in this while racing is still on hold. Um, So then I jumped into, I think, what do they call it? The Colorado, I think it's the Colorado Trail Classic, maybe. Um, And it's this little grassroots event that basically goes from, it it covers that uh, the Silverton to Durango section of the Colorado trail. So I think it's like 80 something miles. Um, and I lined up for that and there'd always been this, you know, can anyone go under eight hours type thing? And I did it in on almost under seven. And that's when I really started to think like, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm decent at this longer, like longer, longer distance stuff. Um, and can move through high country terrain really efficiently and fast. And that's when I really started thinking about the Colorado trail because it's a natural challenge. You know, the, the Durango trailhead is, I ride that section of the CT weekly. Um, know it super, super well. And so I've always wondered, you know, what would it be like to just keep taking it all the way to Denver? I think the trade-off of, of those previous experiences that it gave me a little bit of a false sense of confidence or or gave me too much confidence, false sense of security. And I didn't really realize what a big leap there was experience wise. And just like athletically from a 12, 16 hour effort to three plus days. Um, so yeah, you're right. I'd never been bike packing. Um, I sort of still had this attitude that I thought I could just fitness my way through something on the shorter side like that. Um, but I did talk to some of the, the really, you know, experienced folks. I talked to Neil Belchenko on the phone, talked to Jesse Jacobate, talked to Kurt Refsnyder, uh, talked to Kate Boyle, talked to Lale, and they were all very encouraging. Um, but in hindsight, you know, they all had a little bit of a, like, 
you know, you, you go do your, your thing, you know, you'll find out, <laughs> you'll, <laughs> you'll become aware of, of what this actually is. So long story short, um, I learned a ton. It was the hardest to this day. It's the, the most I've ever suffered. And a lot of that had to do with a lack of experience about how to pace the thing because I'm so used to riding at a certain intensity level um, that I thought I was riding really conservatively, but I actually wasn't riding nearly conservatively enough. And um, I uploaded that uh, that ride to Strava and um, I should have known. I mean, looking back, I basically, for those that... For those that are on Strava, I, I basically took every single KOM from Durango Silverton. <laughs> and I, I was and I thought I was on going a bikepacking so, rig. Yeah, I thought I was going so easy. Um <laughs> and the thing is, like, it's just such a different experience. And I got so much respect for how different it is and what incredible athletes, you know, bike bike pack athletes are. Like there's so much more to it in terms of taking care of yourself, making good decisions in terms of being efficient, saving time. Um, one of the biggest things that I didn't do is I just didn't really walk. Like you have yeah. to get off and save your legs on, on a route like that. Um, and I have this, you know, racer sort of like ego thing about not dabbing, you know, not putting a foot down. Like that's, that's something you try to always do is just stay clipped in. And, and so I just burned so many matches. Um, and so I took myself to a really dark place. Um, I wasn't prepared equipment wise for, for the sleeping. So the first night, um, I got, uh, let's see, I got to, I started at like 8am should have started at four, like everyone else does. And I got to the Jerosa Mesa area, which is a little bit before Slumgolian pass, which was, I was actually ahead of pace for the record at that point. Couldn't sleep. Cause I took, uh, I didn't take a sleeping bag. I just took a bivy and a sleeping pad, mm. um, and like a puffy jacket and stuff since, you know, I was just trying to copy what the ultra gangster yeah. badass bike packers do it for some That's reason. I thought I, I thought I could do that the first time too, for some reason. <laughs> Why not? Um, anyway, it just took me to my knees and there were some other things that happened. Like there was a crazy storm that rolled through and, um, knocked down, uh, a huge number of trees uh, on the Monarch Crest area. And I ended up getting lost in all of this tree fall for, for half an hour yeah. in the dark, which was pretty was scary. Gnarly. Had a pedal fall off the spindle, you know, all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, I just wasn't nearly experienced enough. And um, I rode way too hard at the beginning, made it all the way to copper um, and had basically rode myself into the ground to where my body was really starting to break down. Like I got this really bad facial <clears throat> edema, like my face got crazy puffy to, and, uh, got this really bad, like, uh, wheezing rattle in my chest. Um, and, uh, learned a lot, found my limit and, uh, realized how freaking gnarly <laughs> even a, a four day, you know, bike packing race effort is. Yeah. It was, one of the things that has been very difficult for me to try to quantify is how hard bike pack racing is just, you know, in compared to other endurance efforts or other athletic, um, efforts. And one thing that was interesting, I was rooting for you. I'm not happy that you failed. Um, but it, it's interesting because from your perspective as a high level athlete, to come into this uh, and I would highly encourage um, 
listeners to go watch your video that you did on this. It's on your YouTube channel. It's like 30 minutes long and, and it's it's actually it's very well done in terms from a storytelling perspective and um, giving the watcher and the listener like an insight into like how hard that trail actually is. And I think it's typified by the fact that you are a high level athlete, you know, and you're known for more being an endurance athlete. And um, I thought that video did a really good job of, of showcasing to some degree, like how challenging these, this bike pack racing actually is, you know? And so um, certainly not happy that you failed or anything, but I thought it, it was, it was telling, I guess, you know, of like how, how gnarly that trail is and, and how hard bike pack racing is um, in general. Yeah. You mentioned uh, that you'd want to take another stab at that FKT. Is that something you're still considering? Oh, yeah, I have to. I mean, <laughs> okay. it's, it, it, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it, it's the backyard trail. Um, and two, for me, anytime something just kicks my ass that hard, you know, you have to go kind of reconcile that experience and like, um, not tame it, but, you know, have good experience with it. Um, and that was what Lachlan's effort was all about too. You know, when he did three days, 10 hours or whatever it was, um, that was as much, a I want to see how fast I can go as it was a, I need to have a good experience with this trail. Cause he absolutely got his ass kicked by it the first time too. Yeah. Um, and I've learned a lot since then. Um, in regards to how to take your, take care of yourself, uh, on a multi-day effort like that. Um, but I don't know when I'm going to find the time because to, to really do that effort and that trail justice, um, you have to spend a lot of time preparing for it specifically. And then also it leaves such a hole, um, that I would basically have to take, you know, several months off my normal race season, um, which right now isn't going to happen. Um, the good news is I've, I've got plenty of time. Um, yeah. ultra effort, ultra efforts like that, you know, you can do them, uh, when you're quite a bit older, um, yeah. and maybe even do them better as you age. So it's definitely on the bucket list, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure when I'll be checking it off. It might be better if you can't, uh, pedal your way up a mountain and you maybe you've slowed down a little bit and you have to unclip and walk it, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe it'll serve you better, but you are right. It's one reason I like you know, these longer endurance bike pack racing and stuff, because it is a great equalizer. We're seeing Lael compete right now on the Colorado trail. And, you know, she's fighting for first right now. And, um, it, you know, we see people who are older, uh, who can compete at a high level and people who are sponsored athletes and people like Uba, who just won the tour divide, who like, you know, he has a full, he owns his own company. Like that dude is mm. flying over the world, consulting businesses as a full-time job. And just for fun, he does the tour divide, you know, like mm. it's, it's really cool how it is a great equalizer. And it's something I, I really, um, value from, from that side of the sport. Um, so, you know, another couple, like another, you know, cool, outside of professional bike racer thing that you started doing is these, uh, crossing. So in 2021, you crossed Iceland, 250 miles, did it in 19 hours and 45 minutes. And then uh, this past year in 2022, you did crossing Tasmania. Um, what? T- talk to us real quick, like, why? Like, where did <laughs> this idea come from? 
Uh, again, this is outside of your bike racing. What, what's your why for doing these kind of fun events, I guess? I don't, I don't know what you would call them. They look kind yeah, of fun yeah. to me. Fun yeah. challenges. Well, they're, I'll tell you right now, they're the coolest thing I get to do. Cool. Um, without a doubt. And they sort of came about accidentally. Um, in 21, uh, I got an invite from Chris Burkhardt to go on this bike tour uh, with Lale and Rue in Iceland uh, and, and Nicole, uh, my partner. And it was uh, meant to sort of establish the, the new West Fjords way route um, in the West Fjords of Iceland that Chris had helped put together uh, with, with some local Icelandic folks. And uh, also Tyler. Was, Tyler Wacker, who's from Texas too. Exactly. I would I would characterize him as local Icelandic at this point. He is now, yeah. He lives there now. <laughs> Lucky bastard. Yeah. So he he and Chris and, and a handful of other folks kind of put together this really awesome new route. Um and I was right, kind of I, I was uh I was going back and forth about whether to do it or not, because it was really right in the middle of my season doing an eight day bike tour in Iceland sounded incredible, but it's also, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's not really great prep for, you know, four hour mountain bike races. Sure. Um, and at this point, Chris knows me pretty well. So I think he knew that if he, he sort of dangled like some sort of competitive carrot in front of me, in addition to this bike tour, I would maybe commit to the trip and, what he came up with was he, he just wrote me a note one day and he's like, Hey man, you know, no one's ever done a, a, a single push across Iceland under human power. And there's this, you know, incredible overland history, uh, overland travel in Iceland. And it has this notorious interior, you know, the, the Icelandic highlands, which are basically totally devoid of life. Looks like the moon. Um, literally yes. it's where Apollo, the Apollo missions did a bunch of their training. Um, no one's ever tried to, to single push that. And, and on paper, it's super doable. But the big variable is just the weather. Um, Icelandic weather is about as gnarly as it gets. Um, the interior is super rugged, super rough, zero refuel opportunities, uh, resupply opportunities. So it just sounded like a really cool challenge. And anytime I hear like never been done or, or first ever, um, that gets kind of like my competitive mind going a little bit. And then just the exploratory aspect, the, the adventure aspect really got me interested um, because over time I've really come to appreciate that as much, if not more, um, as compared to the racing stuff I do um, after my Colorado Trail experience, as humbling as that was. So anyway, um, I went over there and did the, the eight-day bike tour with them, which was incredible, and just found myself so... Uh, so enjoying like being immersed with the place that I just um, got really fired up for this crossing idea too. So we had a really tight weather window after the the West Fjords tour, um, which was incredible, by the way. If anyone out there listening is interested in doing uh, a, a bike touring trip or bike packing trip, I'd recommend doing it bike touring rather than bike packing just because the weather can be so heinous and unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, but one thing about the West Fjords is that there's there are really awesome little uh, lodges and stuff throughout, so you can uh, have some shelter. But anyway, we had this tight window after that phase and just sort of after two days of rest, uh, did this crossing and um, it was it was unbelievable. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening will know how special point to point rides are 
but to have the experience be that, you know, you, you dipped your bike tire and in, in the ocean waters of one coast and then just clipped in and just went with only the stuff on your bike, uh, and making it to the other coastline was just make or break based on, you know, your physical ability, your, your mental strength and like what you decided to bring, um, was so cool. Uh, was yeah. so cool. And basically the very next day I, I started looking at maps, like wh- what are the other places that, that you could do this? Yeah, that's well. That was actually my next question. You're a professional. Uh, that, <laughs> we're, 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 I, my question was going to be: Was it always the plan to you know start these crossings, or you just I guess Chris like planted a seed, seed grew into a tree, you did it, and you're like, oh, hmm, that was cool. I wonder if I can do that again. Was that kind of the process? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And also, there's um, you know chasing now and then chasing a record, uh, a pre-existing record is, is really cool. We did the white rim way back in the day, Colorado trail, whatever it is, that's, that's neat. But for me, kind of the, the next step in that evolution is creating your own route because there's so much more work that goes into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I started to get a taste of in Iceland is how much local collaboration is required. Um, and I love that, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty social person. And so having a mission like that, that requires a whole bunch of planning and different pieces, um, just requires collaboration. Like you can't, I guess you could do it alone, but you, or do it, uh, without any sort of local consult or collaboration, but you know, it seems like it'd be pretty risky, um, and it actually, it, it came to fruition there in Iceland where the, the day before I was supposed to do the route, there was this uh, thermal vent that opened under a big glacier mm. and created this huge flood and wiped out a section of, of the road that was on my original route. And so with like 24 hours to go, we were just scrambling, talking to a bunch of locals, uh, listening to some of the local, uh, they have like a, a national... I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a, a, like a disaster, disaster oh. and weather. Cause you know, it's an Island of fire and ice. So things are just happening constantly. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're trying to get Intel on like, okay, what section of the road actually went out? We're talking to this local bike shop, talking to this guide service. Um, and there's just so much communication happening with Icelandic people. And in Iceland, I was like, man, I am, I haven't even done the ride yet. And I'm fully immersed in this place. That's what it feels like. Um, so I really got hooked on that aspect too. And that was one of the main goals, uh, moving forward with them is, is, um, seeing a place that the, the most incredible way I know to see a place by bike. And then also having it this, be this cooperative effort with, uh, people that call the place home. Um, cause it's really what's required to, to make the most of it, I think. So yeah. no, it was, there was no grand scheme. Um, but ever since that, that first one, it it was such a cool experience. I just want to do them as long as I can. Yeah, no, it's super cool. I love, uh, I mean, you, you said it quite well and it's, 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 uh, it's displayed in your videos, uh, in both of these where you touch your tire in the ocean, you start and then you finish in the ocean and, 
Uh, there's something like pretty impactful of that imagery and that idea of like, hey, I just traverse this entire country um, by bike, and what a, what an amazing way to to see and immerse yourself in the place uh, that you're in. You know, we absolutely agree on that. So, um, you know, just for just so you know, and and also the listener, I guess this episode will come out. Um, next Wednesday. So, uh, crossing Tassie will actually come out, uh, in a few days on Friday. So when this episode comes out, it'll be available to the public. And, um, I believe crossing Tassie will be on or crossing Tasmania, sorry, uh, will be on Red Bull and free to watch for everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how did, how did Tasmania, uh, get on your radar? Uh, why did you land there? Yeah. Well, I have a a notebook with a whole bunch of different ideas, um, a whole bunch of different places I'd like to go and ride, um, places that, uh, you know, a single push crossing would make sense. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of places that I'm interested in doing this. Um, Tasmania, (sighs) Tasmania was on or is on there, I guess, because a few reasons. One, I raced um, <clears throat> cross-country world champs in Australia one time, and this is back in 2016, I think. And uh, I was really, I had this sort of um, interesting experience where I achieved this, you know, childhood goal of competing at the professional level in the world championships in mountain biking. You know, that's a that was a big like dream. Uh, and I was there for five days and every single day practiced this little, I think it was like a five kilometer course, saw some kind of cool stuff, um, but never really felt like I was even in Australia, you know, okay. We were driving on the left side of the road. There's some weird looking animals next to the course. But other than that, (laughs) I saw the airport, I saw a hotel, um, you know, I was really stressed out a lot of the time because I wanted to make the most of my race. And so I felt like I never really visited Australia and it, I had huge regrets and it was a, it was a big turning point for me. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to go back to Australia. And then also you just hear, you know, incredible things about Tasmania specifically, almost like it's this, its own little mini planet. And that's yeah. one of the reasons that I'm, I'm really kind of obsessed with Island crossings is by their very nature, you know, they're, they're a little bit insular. They have, it's just default that they're going to develop their own cultures to an extent, their own subcultures, their own ways of life. There's probably going to be wildlife there. That's a little bit different than anywhere else in the world. Even, you know, an Island that's pretty close to other, you know, big land masses and theoretically have tons of cultural crossover. Like there's going to be, differences. Like if you think of Ireland versus the UK, for example, Irish culture has so many significant differences to the rest of the UK or whatever. Same goes for Tasmania. You know, Tasmania, I learned is often completely left off of Australian maps because it's just kind of down there by itself and the rest (laughs) of Australia forgets about it. Um, (laughs) um, As crazy as that sounds. So yeah, the more I looked into it, the more I just really fixated on it. Um, it has incredible mountain biking. Um, in Derby, uh, they have in, uh, an Enduro World Series race every year, and it's been voted 
writer's favorite many times. And I knew I wanted uh, this one to be to require a mountain bike and to include a lot of single tracks. So there are a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, and yeah, then I just started rolling up my sleeves and figuring out what it would be and making contact with some of the people that live there. Yeah. Let's talk about Emma flukes. Uh, yeah. for me, like <laughs> I can't disassociate Tasmania and not think of like Emma flukes. Like, um, yeah. she's been on the podcast twice and she's one of my favorite guests. Like she is, her raw and unapologetic view. And I don't, I, I'm just a big fan of like how chill she is about like super hard and seemingly like just mind bogglingly difficult terrain that she rides in. And she's like so relaxed about it. I, I don't know. Uh, she's just a total totally. badass, total badass. And so, um, spoiler alert, she's, she's in your film. Uh, you connected with her, uh, talk about Emma. I mean, what was, uh, what was your impression of Emma? Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is a great story. So originally one of the other reasons I was drawn to Tasmania is they have a route called the Tasmania trail, which is a 200 and I think 90 mile route from North to South that, um, is sort of like a, a state point of pride. Um, and I, I was thinking about doing that. It seemed doable. I was still sort of like fixated on this, do it in a day or less type thing. Like, could I cross Tasmania in 24 hours or less? And on paper, this Tasmania trail uh, very much could be 24 hours or less. So I was still kind of had this racer mindset, you know, chasing a record. Um, and then I realized that it was going to be super gravel bikeable. And I was like, man, I, I really want to do a mountain bike route this time. And, and so I started thinking about, well, what can, what little like random bits of route can I add on to the Tasmania trail that would like require a mountain bike so I can justify riding a mountain bike, but it's still doable in under 24 hours. Um, so I was kind of trying to come up with my own variation and I found this crazy, like 3,500 foot rock drop in off this plateau that I thought I could maybe add in. And I was looking at Strava segments and I would find these little Strava segments. And there was this one name that just kept popping up on these Strava segments that had five people on them or seven people on them, hmm. nine people on them. And it was Emma. And after a while, I was just like, who is this Emma person? Like she's, she's the only one that's done all of these weird segments in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so finally I, I found her online and I think it was around, I can't remember if I found her on Instagram or I found her on your podcast first. Um, but it came pretty quickly apparent that she was the one that I should probably talk to, yeah. um, to get the most advice about this. And for those that don't know that haven't heard your episodes with her, she's sort of like the queen of backcountry Tasmania. Um, yes. in fact, I think that's what we put as her byline in the, <laughs> in the film, um, but yeah, she's a, she's a marine, marine scientist um, and also just happens to be a really hardcore bikepacker, adventure rider, puts on this crazy race called Tassie Gift um, that I've got to do at some point. But she was a wealth of knowledge. And you're right, she's very no-nonsense or, or matter-of-fact about yeah. what's hard. Um, that comes through a little bit in the film. I mean, basically, she helped me put together this route. So little bit of a spoiler, but instead of doing the the Tasmania trail, she basically said, you know, what if you just do a, let's build a completely new route that, uh, takes in as much of the best of Tasmania as, as we can. Um, 
And I started learning things like the western coast of Tasmania has the cleanest air ever recorded. Got to go check that out. What's it like to breathe the cleanest air in the world? You know, I want to check that out. Exactly. So we just kind of created this best of route. She's actually done a coast to coast. She did Mm -hmm. one, I think, south to north. Um, But yeah, huge, huge thanks to her and and a bunch of other uh, Tassie locals that helped make it what it was. Yeah, it was really interesting in the film. I don't want to give the whole thing away because I want people to go watch it. But you said like you had gone in with planning and preparing to go in north to south and you show up and talk to Emma and completely change. I mean, completely change the route. The only thing that's the same is you're going to cross your original route <laughs> yeah. at some point. But other yeah. than that, you're never going to touch that route at all. And so um, well, just it, chose, people- it, it totally ahead. changed. Yeah, just quickly. I think it's worth yeah, noting please. that it completely changed what I was looking for too. Like for me, 270 or 280 miles, whatever it is, like on paper that could be done in a day. This new route, 300, it was 360 miles, 35,000 feet of climbing. I could not do that in one day. Um, and so I had to really let go of, of, uh, and change my mindset about what I was looking for. And that's a lot of what the film is about. Um, yeah. but I mean, that's what, that's what I think a lot of these adventure trips should be. You know, you you can go in thinking you have a plan, but being open minded and allowing them allowing them to evolve is um, a, a good mindset to have. Yeah. Well, we'll let people go watch it. Um, like all of your films, I mean, I think your production value is just getting better and better as you go. Um, but it's it's just a very well done story. And, um, I mean, I'm all about inspiring people to get out there and ride their damn bike. And I think that, uh, is a great resource for people to go check out and, uh, being mindful of time. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, where is it? I want to make sure I don't mess this one up. Okay. Easy one. What is, what do you consider to be your greatest accomplishment, your fondest memory, as a athlete, as a cyclist? Easy, easy, easy question to close it out. Oh man. I've never been asked that. (sighs) Yeah, that's tough. Cause I mean, there's, it depends on how you want to answer that. Like proudest, proudest result or, you know, proudest, uh, or, or like the time that I, I was at my best physically or athletically, man, I don't know. I almost want to ask Nicole, like phone a friend <laughs> for what? How about this? Can I ask you a question and maybe it'll spur, uh, sure. just, and, and this doesn't have to be your answer, but something that stood out to me when I was researching this film is your film, a win for dad, which was your, mm. when you won your, uh, the 2017 national champion, um, God, dude, I was, I mean, I was watching that shit at 11 o'clock last night. And I was tearing up on my fucking couch, man. <laughs> like your dad's reaction to that as a father, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's, it's like just all the feels. It was yeah. amazing. Your dad's yeah. racing in the same race. And so that doesn't have to be your answer, but just maybe it, it, it spurs something. But that has to be, I think, a highlight. Uh, being so early on in your career, winning your first national championship, having your dad in the field, uh, I mean, brings you to tears, man. 
Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I can answer with that one. It's because um, that one definitely changed the the trajectory of my career as well. Um, and that was an interesting one because the 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 main guy I was going up against um, is named Howard Grotz, and he's a really good friend of mine. Um, we were actually roommates for a while, and he uh, he's he's one of the best racers of our generation. Uh, went to the Rio Olympics for us. Um, he's won the Cape Epic. Um, and it was actually that year that he, that he won the Cape Epic. And so he, you know, on paper was one of, if not the strongest, uh, you know, long distance mountain bikers in the world. Um, and, but the course just really, uh, lent itself to my skill sets. And for whatever reason that you, you always kind of have to have a, a never say die attitude in these races, but, for whatever reason this day, I just really had that. And I remember it wasn't a smooth day. I had this crash at one point in a pretty deep Creek where I went, you know, almost over my head in water and had to fish my bike out and chase back <laughs> onto the group and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, it was just a special day and, and I was able to, to win and having my dad there made it, you know, that much more special. Um, and like I referenced way at the beginning of our conversation, that was kind of the race where, you know, people, brands, et cetera, started saying, Oh, you know, you're this long distance guy now. And so that same year, actually, um, I medaled at, uh, cross country nationals. Um, and so on paper, I was a cross country racer too. You know, I, I went to XCO worlds that year, um, could have kept pursuing kind of a world cup track, but that national title just sort of nudged me towards doing the longer distance stuff a little bit. Um, and wanting to represent with that jersey at Leadville, the national champs jersey is what spurred me to do Leadville um, the first time. So, yeah, I, that's a good one, actually. And um, I forgot about that little film. Uh, it's a pretty classic moment when my dad, you know, assumes that Howard's won, of course, yeah. rightfully so. And then yeah. he, he's surprised when <laughs> it's not the case. <laughs> and if you want to see what Payson looks like without a mustache. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's There's true. a couple that's videos true. out there. There's Way a couple when. videos out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Payson, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. It's an absolute pleasure to to finally touch base with you after all these years. Um, I'm a big fan of you as an athlete and and you off the bike, all the things you do off the bike to help inspire people, to show people what's possible um, and and to highlight other other athletes and other people who are out there pursuing their passions and their dreams. So I think you add a lot of value to our community and uh, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for, for thanks for everything you do. And and again, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's It's been a, a, a real treat. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I, I appreciate that. And same to you. Keep up the good work. I uh, really appreciate all the work you put in as well. Uh, yeah, I don't plan on stopping. This is too much fun. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, and it, it's a really good way to, I think it's a healthy, uh, you know, you you project your energy towards someone else and, and give them a platform and helps you get out of your own head sometimes being yeah. a podcast host. So I hear you there. Perspective hey. is always a beautiful thing. Please. Where do I get one of those bikes or death shirts? Uh, send me your address. DM me. Do you have Do you have like an online store or anything? Uh, I do. Uh, it's currently broken, and my oh, tech dang. person is trying to figure out. And so right now, if anyone or orders, it'll just be like, "Hey, um, message me, and like we can do Venmo or PayPal <laughs> or something." Like it's 
Cool. I don't know. I'm more, I'm not a tech guy, so we're working on it, but uh, I can enough. definitely hook you up. Cool. I'd love that. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to have you wearing a Bikes for Death shirt. Easy. <laughs> cool, man. Have, have a great much. rest of your season, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. We'll be in touch. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. And a big shout out goes to Payson McKelvin. What an awesome guest. What an awesome athlete and human. It was an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast. And hopefully we can do another one in the future. I would love that. Next week, I am chatting with Marone Golfman, who was the first place finisher of the Colorado Trail Race this year. I met Marone back at the end of Tour Divide this year. Uh, He attempted that. He got pulled out for reasons that we'll discuss on that episode. Because he had to scratch, uh, he found himself at the end of the Tour Divide, hanging out, making meals, picking up riders, taking them to the airport, and I got to spend some time with him there too. So it was a pleasure to catch up with him. And uh, after that episode, I'm talking with Katya, who was the first place women's finisher of the Colorado Trail Race and a new FKT holder. So lots of good uh, podcasts coming your way in the next couple weeks. So make sure to tune into those. Thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure. And until next week, go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke, stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless, your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes, more death. Bikes, more death.